Well, good morning, church. And thank you, Brother, brother Bill. What is, what is your ambition in life? hope you've thought about that question. Why am I here? And what do I want to leave behind? You know, something I, I love about our millennial generation. You know, they get a bad rap, and I've probably at times picked on millennials a little too much. But millennials want to make a difference. You know? Well, what greater ambition could there be what better way of making a difference in this world than to win souls for Jesus Christ? You know, all the, all the things that we may accomplish, tangible things that we might look at, they, they fade like the grass, right? I mean, even, even the, the great accomplishments of life in 100 years, will, will anybody know of that other than God? I pray in 100 years, Jesus has come back, right? <laughs> so that won't matter. But, but you know, what does matter and what lasts for eternity are our souls. God has designed souls to be eternal, to be with him. And, and because of sin, because of the, the fallen world that we're born into in which we're born at enmity with God. We need Christ. And God's entrusted the gospel message to you and to me. We have the opportunity to make a difference for eternity in souls because they are eternal. They'll, they'll spend eternity either in heaven or in hell, either in God's presence or separated from God and, and this lifetime determines that for every soul. And God has actually given us a part to play. And we'll see in this text that he's sovereign. He gets all the glory. His sovereignty is a, should be a great motivator. But you and I have a commission. Proverbs 11.30 says, and I'm reading the New King James uh, translation here, that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. So does ambition matter? You bet it does. Ambition, when married together with truth, can change the world. Writing about the Apostle Paul, uh, specifically the Apostle Paul's ambition here, Pastor Kent Hughes said this, Paul's life is cause for amazement and reflection. In the context of the times in which he lived, his situation appeared absurd. On one side, there was Rome, metropolis of the world, heart of the empire, insufferably proud on her seven hills, Shaking the earth with the march of her fabled legions. On the other side was this little Jew with scarred face and feeble body, ostensibly impotent amidst such power, armed only with something he called the good news. Yet he changed the history of Rome 
the history of Western civilization, and indeed our own lives. So this morning, I invite you to uh, look inside your, your bulletin, your worship guide. You'll see a, a copy of, of notes. I've left a couple blanks for you. Um, we're going to fill in those blanks together with our three points. And the first we're going to look at is, God, is Paul's mission. We're going to consider Paul's sense of mission. What was that? Well, we, we see here in the first couple verses of our text, Paul's mission was the discipleship of the Gentiles. Or you could say to make disciples of the unreached, people who never before had the opportunity to understand what the gospel means, what this good news is, who is this Jesus who can change the eternal plight of their souls. Well, you know, I want to start by saying, before we look at verse 14, this, this letter, that we've, been, we've spent over a year in the book of Romans, right? Remember, this is a letter. We believe Paul wrote it from the city of Corinth, uh, a proud, ancient city full of debauchery. Um, I've had a chance to visit the ruins of Corinth. We believe that Paul wrote this in the, in the midst of his, what we call his third, actually towards the end, very end of his third missionary journey before he went back to Jerusalem to carry an offering uh, to, uh, from the Gentiles back to the Jews. And he's expressing his great desire to, to visit the Romans, right? But in the, in, 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 in the midst of a letter that had human um, um, reasons for writing, Paul actually wanted them to assist him. Uh, he wanted to visit with them. He had never been to Rome before. Looked forward to just just meeting these these people who, in many ways, um, he had it was kind of the grandfather maybe of their faith. He had he had brought the gospel to other other people who had then brought the gospel to the imperial capital of Rome. He you know just the actual opportunity to be there excited him. But he wanted to partner with the Roman Church, and we're going to look at this uh, in our next sermon on Romans, which will be in about a month or so. Okay, because we're going to take a break and focus on Advent. But he wanted them to actually help support him on an onward journey to Spain, which was the outer reaches. Basically, Brittany and Spain were the furthest reaches of the known world during his time. So that was this pioneer's heart, right? This, this mission he had. But you know, in the midst of that, this is a human letter, but a divine letter because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul as he, was, as he was seeking to help unify this church that he had heard about. He'd been encouraged about, but this church full of, of Gentiles and some Jews who had some strong cultural differences that we've spent some time looking at, right? Um, old, old covenant uh, uh, dietary restrictions uh, that had actually been extrapolated to vegetarianism because of a fear of maybe eating meat that was, that was uh, not kosher to, hey, you know, people like us who, who love our steaks, and, and you can imagine the conflicts that might have happened at church picnics. So he writes this letter wanting to help unify them, but in, as such, the Holy Spirit of God um, inspires Paul to just unpack the gospel in one of the most marvelous ways ever done. I mean, this is the most influential, probably the most influential book of the Bible in human history, book of Romans. But it was a letter written by this little Jew in the city of Corinth 
It was a divine letter, and it was a human letter. And there was some strong exhortation in this letter, especially in the last couple chapters. And so in this letter, as he, as he reaches the end of the letter, Paul softens up a little bit, right? You ever, you ever written a letter and, and you realize, hey, that might have been a little strong? Um, they needed to hear it, but now it's time to kind of, you know, let's, let's kind of conclude on a softer, in a softer way. And so in verse 14, he addresses them, my brothers. And yeah, he's been a little bit hard on them. But his compliments here in verse 14 are sincere. Have you ever been a little too hard, by the way? This is just a side note uh, on maybe your child. I have. On a daughter or a son. And, and then you back up and you remind them, you remind yourself of all the things that you thank God for them about. So here's what he writes, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. These are beautiful words, encouraging words. Now, you might hear that word goodness. You think, wait a minute, Paul. I thought earlier you said there is none who are good. Right? Are you contradicting yourself? Or, or Paul, maybe, maybe you're looking at these Romans and you're saying, well, yeah, in your justified state, you have the goodness of God um, imputed upon you. No, I don't think so. All right, you know that word goodness? I mean, yes, but I'm not sure that's what Paul meant here. All right? That word goodness, that Greek word can also be translated simply kindness. Just saying, I, I've heard you, you are kind. You're full of it, of Kindness. You're also full of knowledge. What a beautiful combination. Truth and grace together. They have knowledge of God's word such that they're already able to disciple or teach one another. What, may, may that be true of us. May we be kind. May we also be people of truth. And, and people who not only just consume or take in the word of God, but Teach it to one another. Teach it to our children. Uh, share it with our neighbors. Um, I pray that would be true of us, and I think it is. But Lord, help us grow in that. Then in verse 15, he, he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here he shares with us his mission. And I find it interesting here that he uses priestly words to describe his mission. You know, Paul was a theologian. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was not a priest. Never had been a priest. He'd never been allowed in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Okay? Proud Jew, not a priest. But here he's saying, I view myself as a Christian priest making an offering. That's what priests did. They, they were the ones who actually made offerings for the people to God. 
Well, what is this offering that Paul is presenting to God as a Christian priest? Well, it's the fruit of his life and ministry. Souls. Former pagan souls who had now been saved by Jesus and had been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And they were kind. And they were well taught. And they had been teaching one another such that they could continue the mission. It was reproduction, not addition. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, Here we are exposed to Paul's remarkable self-conception. Though he is involved in the dusty, mundane business of traveling the ancient world on foot, suffering from exposure, threats, beatings, and rejection, in his heart of hearts he sees himself in priestly garb in the temple, lifting up the souls of men that then ascend as a sweet-smelling fragrance to Christ. Fully apprehended and appreciated, this is a dazzling picture. You know, you have to wonder if about a year later we read in the book of Acts when you kind of harmonize scripture, right? When you, when you look at Romans and you look at Acts and, and where he was and, and you, know, you look at your map in the back of your Bible and you, you realize it was about a year later, Paul found himself in Jerusalem, arrested by Roman, the Roman garrison there who were trying to save him from being lynched by a mob who were falsely accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. All right? Um, that's, that's how Paul actually did end up back in Rome as a prisoner. Okay? He didn't get there the way he expected. And, and it all went back to this big incident we read about in, in Acts in Jerusalem. I think it's Acts 21 where he's arrested in Jerusalem. Acts 21, 22, you know, he goes before Festus and Felix and all this. Well, you wonder if as he's being arrested there, under the false charge of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, if Paul had to smile inside a little bit and, and think, you guys don't know the half of it. You don't know the hundredth of it. I've already offered thousands of Gentile souls as an offering to God. You know, Bob Tebow, a former mentor of mine, father of Tim Tebow, who everybody's heard of, he used to tell me that his dream, he had an ambition in life. His dream was getting to heaven one day and being able to meet and, and present uh, just a whole wing, he used to describe it. He had this vision, this, this wing of, of souls to the Lord. People who had never before had the chance to hear the gospel. People that he had announced Christ to and even been involved in discipling for, for God's glory. That was, his, that was his dream. And, and Mike and, and Libby, you know, your missionary lives are, are sacred before the Lord. The, the sacrifices you make, and I think probably the hardest one is yet to come for you. I know you and I love you, and I know you've made a lot of sacrifices, but I think... Being separate from your boys is going to be maybe the toughest sacrifice of your ministry. Well, that comes before the Lord as a sweet-smelling fragrance, like an offering, like a priestly offering. And we're, we're going to pray that the fruit of your ministry 
will be thousands of souls. We already know that there are many one souls who never before accurately had the chance to hear the gospel. And you spent a lot of time living among them and teaching them. And, and now they're out there making disciples, kind of like these Romans Paul's writing to. Uh, they're kind. They went from spearing each other to, to loving each other. And, and now they're taking the, the gospel to second and third generation churches and villages and places. Some of them are even partnering with you to help now bring, them, bring the gospel out to the islands. That's beautiful. And, and I pray that both Wano and islanders from villages that right now still don't understand what it means to be a Christian will be the fruit of your ministry. And you know what? In partnering with them, even by helping sponsor, helping pay for a boat, that's having a part in that ministry. Um, and I, and I, I pray that, this, that God will just be pleased, and I believe he will. But you know, it's not only for those who cross salt water. We, we too are to live as priests for God, presenting our, our bodies as living sacrifices to God and seeking to minister to souls. You know, a, a child taught at the heights becomes an offering to God when you have that mindset, right? A, a brother or a sister, forgiven of an offense that maybe really wounded you, that, that's an offering to the Lord. A dinner that you cook and you take over to a neighbor who's struggling, who's hurting, and, and, and maybe you combine that with a prayer in your heart for them or maybe even a prayer for them, with them, that is an offering to God when you present it to him in your heart, when it's done for his glory. You know, Romans 12, 1 tells us that each of us are to present ourselves. I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. John Stott, who's now with the Lord, he wrote, all evangelists are priests because they offer their converts to God. Indeed, it is this truth more than any other which effectively unites the church's two major roles of worship and witness. Let me just hit the pause button on Stott for a sec. Our, our vision is to know God, right? That's heart worship and to make him known. There, there's a relationship. There's a, there's a relationship between those two things. In reality, you can't have one without the other, in truth. There's a symbiotic relationship between worship and witness. And that's what he writes about here. Let me continue here. Um, it is when we worship God, glorifying in his holy name, that we are driven out to proclaim his name to the world. And when, through our witness, people are brought to Christ, we then offer them to God. Further, they themselves join in his worship until they too go out to witness Thus, worship leads to witness and witness to worship. End quote. So that was Paul's mission. Let's talk about Paul's recognition. Verse 17 through 19. And that is that God gets all the glory for the fruit. 
for that offering that we present to him. He gets all the glory because his is the heart-changing work to do. You and I, we can't change hearts. We can do our best to present it. We can do our best to model the truth. We should be praying and, and asking the Lord for, for the souls of our kids, for the souls of our neighbors, for the souls of the unreached. But, but he's the one who changes hearts. That's God's work to do. And so he gets all the glory. And that is Paul's recognition. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Remind me if I forget. We're going to come back to that one. I want to explain that for a moment to you. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so what is Paul talking about here? Um, we've got a map I'd like to show you, um, if we can put that up, brothers, um, of Paul's missionary journeys. And, you know, you can look in the back of your Bible probably and find a map. Uh, first missionary journey, second, third. Um, might be kind of hard here to, you know, see it all. Um, the, the last hasn't happened yet. That's the green one at the bottom. Uh, that would be his actual journey to Rome as a prisoner. But you look at, the, you look at all those lines up there, right? Uh, you see some major circuits. Um, what, what Paul's talking about here, what he is, is summarizing, would be the last 10 years of his ministry. All three missionary journeys. Again, we believe he's writing from Corinth towards the end, right at the end of his third missionary journey. And so he mentions here, hey, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, now where's Illyricum? That's a good question, uh, because we don't actually read about Illyricum anywhere in the book of Acts. Illyricum was a dusty or a desolate, rugged, mountainous province, uh, Roman province, um, basically former Yugoslavia, okay, so modern day Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Albania. If you look at the map and you see the boot of Italy over there on the left, and then the Adriatic Sea, it's the other side of that, okay, the far western, uh, northwestern uh, side of Macedonia. So you can see that's actually kind of far from even all the, all the lines that we have here in our maps that are basically trying to kind of trace and summarize um, what we read about in the book of Acts. So bottom line, and here's the point, Illyricum was very far from Jerusalem, 1,400 miles, in fact. And Paul had walked all of this in a pair of sandals. Let's just remember, okay? Um, We've got maybe some hikers in the room. I enjoy backpacking, hiking a bit. A couple years ago, I got a chance to hike. I can't even remember. Maybe it's 150 miles across the Pennine Alps. Okay, so it was up and down every day. 1,400 miles. Um, and that was... The, Paul didn't go there in a straight line. That's as the crow flies. Okay? Maybe, I know we have one church member, at least, who's done the entire AT Trail, Appalachian Trail. I think that's about 2,100 miles not in a pair of sandals, okay, with modern equipment. 
Um, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of miles over 10 years that this man had walked. Pretty incredible. By the way, if you're, if you're a geek like me and you're like, okay, where, when did he maybe make it out to Illyricum? Um, in, in, in Acts 20, if you carefully read and backtrace and look at maps, you actually see there's about a, a two-year window Okay, the time frame where Paul could have gone there uh, after he, he left Ephesus before he actually embarked on the final journey home back to, I say back home, but back to Jerusalem. Okay, um, um, that, there was a time, there was a, a time in which Paul very much probably, well, we don't have our map, it's okay, probably from Thessalonica, maybe, maybe took a, there was a, a, a remote road, Roman road that led up to Illyricum. He probably did, that, that's probably when he did it, but we don't know for sure. What we do know it was a huge amount of territory, huge amount of territory. So how in the world in, in 10 years could Paul possibly say that in this whole region he has proclaimed to God, the gospel to everybody? Well, that's not exactly what he said. And clearly he did not proclaim the gospel to every single living soul. But what Paul did was he went to the major population centers throughout this region, and he proclaimed the gospel and he planted churches where people would be faithful to continue proclaiming the gospel to their neighbors and even sending out their own missionaries and messengers to reach. So it's kind of like a virus if you think about it. It's a kind of a terrible illustration, sorry folks, right now. But you think about how these things spread. That's the idea here with the gospel. We want to seed it. He seeded it in all these places. He was a pioneer. And we see that Paul had a great sense of joy and satisfaction in his work, but he gives all the glory to Jesus. Now, before I forget, verse 17 in the ESV says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And you might think, hey, wait a minute, is that a little boastful? Well, it's important to you know, look at the actual original language. I like the way the NIV has translated this. It's, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. You see, he found great meaning in his work. His ambition provided a deep sense of soul satisfaction despite all the, all the pain, because Paul went through a lot of pain, as, as we know. Stonings, <laughs> rejection, Sickness, fatigue, hunger, etc., etc., and imprisonments. But he says in Galatians six fourteen, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he'll boast in: the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mission, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul boasts in Jesus Christ. He recognizes that God has worked powerfully through his spirit to bless his ministry with fruit. Now, a couple things that I, I just want to draw your attention to that I think are interesting here in verse 17 through 19. It's interesting that Paul says that God brought the Gentiles to obedience through his ministry. And of course, that was the obedience of faith. He uses that phrase several times in the book of Romans. The end goal here for Paul wasn't just getting people saved. It wasn't just conversion. The end goal was discipleship. Paul recognizes here 
that the business of changing hearts belongs to God. So God gets all the glory. You know, God's sovereignty should motivate us all the more to share the gospel, and it should never be an excuse to be lazy or disobedient to the Great Commission. Have you ever heard people use the sovereignty of God as an excuse? Sit down, Mr. Carey. God will get the gospel to the heathen when he's good and ready. Or maybe even, you know, hey, um, God's, because God's the one who changes hearts, ah, I don't really need it. You know, why should I be out there beating on doors, um, manipulating people? Well, the truth is, we don't have to manipulate, but we do need to demonstrate and clearly present the truth. Point people to Jesus. And notice here, he says, in word and deed. Now, you might look back at Paul and others like him, these disciples, who the Holy Spirit was often doing miracles through these apostles. You might think, well, hey, you know, um, how, can, how can I really do this in deed? I mean, maybe God's never worked a miracle through me. But you know, deed doesn't just mean miracle. It means physically caring for people or maybe emotionally caring for people. Jesus didn't just show his power his deeds by healing the sick and raising the dead, although he did that. He also demonstrated the gospel by taking a child into his arms. And you can do that too. Paul mentions here the power of signs and wonders. And sometimes we think, well, you know, God doesn't do that anymore because we don't see that kind of thing happening in front of us. Well, you want to see more of this? Like God demonstrating his power in your life? Get out of your comfort zone. Like take a big step of faith outside your comfort zone to share Jesus with people. Like to pray big prayers for people and and see what God does. Bottom line here, though, is that in this text... Paul gives all the glory to Jesus. I once had a professor named Cliff Bedell. He taught me um, the book of Romans in seminary 22 years ago. He's now gone to be with the Lord. But my professor, uh, Dr. Bedell, used to say, Paul doesn't tell people what he has done for Christ. He tells people what Christ has done for him and through him. That was Paul's recognition. Now let's talk about Paul's ambition. That's our third point this morning. Third and final point. Paul's ambition to take the gospel to the unreached, to those who have no clear knowledge or understanding of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. Verse 20, Paul writes, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as is it written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So what what is an ambition anyway? Because Paul says, I make it my ambition. Biblically, what's an ambition? You know, you know the Greek word actually means Literally, I love honor. That's what ambition means. 
I love honor. I actually love Oswald Chambers' translation here. He translates this word or this phrase, I make it my ambition. I make it a point of spiritual honor. That's what Paul's saying here, to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. My professor used to say that Paul had the gift of divine discontent with ministering among the reached. Now, praise God, not everybody has that gift because God doesn't call all of us to go to the unreached. But maybe the Lord will give some of you this calling, this, this restlessness. I, just, I can't just keep pouring myself out to those who have all the access in the world while there are <laughs> thousands of unengaged, unreached people groups out there. Right? God may raise up more apostle-type ministers, right? Missionaries. I pray he will from us to, to go, and it, it takes a lot of work. But it's, it's making a commitment, saying, by God's grace, I will not stand at the judgment seat of Christ alone. I will make it my ambition to bring others with me, others who've never had a chance to hear before. And I, I pray we have, all, all of us have that, this desire that I, I don't want to get to heaven never having won somebody to Jesus Christ. And I say that with 100% confidence that it's only the Holy Spirit who saves. God gets all the glory, but he uses us. Or at least I tried because I shared with hundreds of people or thousands of people I will make that my ambition to bring others with me. You know, this isn't the only time that Paul has mentioned this great ambition. In, in 2 Corinthians 10, 16, he said, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, beyond Corinth, right? Without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. You see, Paul was a, a pioneer. You know, we, we, I mentioned this over a year ago when we started the book of, of Romans. In his introduction to the church in Rome, in, in verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he, you know, for, for over for 10 years, Paul had longed to get to Rome, and Paul was funded. And Paul took ships as well as walked. And so you think, well, Paul, why hadn't you gone yet? What was preventing you from visiting Rome? And finally, now, Paul tells us the reason. In verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. It's because I, I had to get the gospel first to those who had no access. Others had taken the gospel we think it was probably originally Jewish believers, right, who had come to know Jesus, who had gone to the Jewish diaspora in Rome. We, we think the church first kind of, kind of grew there, but we also, you know, it could have been some, some Gentile 
proselyte, maybe, maybe people who had, who had seen the power of God at Pentecost, who had come back, possibly. But Paul couldn't, in good faith, put the expense and the energy of, of going to Rome when there were all these people in what, what's now called, we think of Turkey, Asia Minor, right? And, and, and Greece and that whole Iberian Peninsula, all that, that whole peninsula, that whole area. He couldn't go to a place where there was gospel knowledge and, and leave the unreached unreached. Because he had that calling. And as I mentioned earlier, he's not done yet. He wants to get to the outer rim. And we'll look at that in a month or so. You know, some, some commentators here wax eloquently about the importance of having a vision, having a dream. Oh, this is Paul's vision. I hope you have a vision. But I, I say, let's spend a little bit of time as we land the plane here looking at his actual ambition, his actual vision. Shouldn't we have some of that? Like, shouldn't we care today, 2,000 years later almost, that there are unreached people groups out there? And we've got airplanes and boats and the Internet. So I've got three points I, I want to make as we kind of land the plane uh, this morning under, under, under this, as we think about the unreached. Point number one. This Thanksgiving, this Thanksgiving, frankly, people are struggling to be thankful. It's been a hard year for us. Frankly, it's been a hard year for the world. 2020. Can't wait for it to be in the rearview mirror, right? And yet, God has lessons for us, right? Even in the hardships. And so, this Thanksgiving, I hope that you will actually be thankful for missionaries. Those who cross culture all the way back to Paul. Right? If it weren't for missionaries, as I mentioned last week, we would not be sitting here today. It's wrong for us to think that this is Jerusalem, like the mothership of Christianity. It's not. We're, we're an outpost. By God's grace, he's done a great work over the last several hundred years. Particularly, honestly, even as we've seen moral decline in our country, we've seen a great uh, in America, we've seen great growth among the evangelical church in the last 50 years. And a whole lot of missionaries being sent out by America. But you know, we, we are the recipients. Think about it for a second. Where we now live right here was totally an unreached part of the earth when Paul wrote the book of Romans. I mean, he didn't know about North America. And we live in a country of immigrants. Most of our DNA in this room comes from other continents. And almost all of those continents and places where we originated, our ancestors came from, they too were unreached with the gospel when Paul wrote this passage. Now some of you may have a little Greek blood, maybe they had just gotten it. But hey, those, those of us from Northern Europe, like I mentioned last week, we were Druids and pagans. So aren't you thankful that, that Paul and others took the gospel to our forefathers such that we have it today in, 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 in clarity? All these translations of the Bible, websites, churches. Aren't you thankful for the disciple maker who shared the gospel with you? Maybe it was your mom or your dad, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was someone else. 
who took a, took a leap of faith when they shared with you. And aren't you thankful for the disciple makers who are out there today? I mean, I'm looking at a few of them right there. The, the, looking at the Wild family and the Douglas family who are willing to leave their family and their culture and take risks to get the gospel to the unreached. It's not only Americans either, by the way. I, I, I'm thankful for our African brothers and sisters. Just in this last century, God has done amazing things on the continent of Africa. And frankly, it's our African brothers and sisters that are really taking the gospel back to Europe, as I mentioned last week. You know, the, the Episcopal Church has mostly gone liberal, but not in Africa. It's our African brothers and sisters that believe the, believe the gospel still. Praise God for them. I'm thankful for my Asian brothers and sisters. You know, next, second to America, South Korea is the, the, by far the, the largest missionary sending organi- uh, uh, country. Okay? The Koreans are sending out droves of missionaries to some hard places, Central Asia especially. Okay? They have some strategic relationships as a nation in a lot of the Stans. You know, Stan just means the land of, land of the Uzbeks, land of the Tajiks land of the Turkmen, a lot of Koreans can go there, they get visas very easily, and they're being faithful to take the gospel to these places. And our Chinese brothers and sisters, in fact, I've got a map, uh, brothers, if we can put that up, uh, this is a very simple one, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, progress maps, uh, some of them you can really zoom in on and, and, and actually see, you know, you know, zoom way in using Google Earth and, and see where tribal groups and unreached are, but basically, the red are the least reached, green are, you know, where the most, most, most access to the gospel still is. And, you know, you look at China today, look at the eastern seaboard of China. It's all house churches. Hundreds of thousands of them. The, 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 the last I heard, I mean, there, there are seminaries in China all underground that are bigger than ours, that have more people involved. The, the second largest house church movement in China, it's a network, larger than the SBC. Praise God for that, you know? Look at that. This is in the last 50 years. Eastern China has gone to green. Doesn't mean everyone's believing, but you know what? Some of these places where it's a communist government, it's like 40% evangelical in some of these places. Where you've got people who, you know, they're in their, in their government, but they love Jesus and are sharing not everywhere, and frankly, in the last 10 years, there's been an uptick of persecution against pastors and churches and Christians in China. Huge, huge persecution going against, on against the Muslims in China, against the Uyghurs. I mean, truly horrid what they're doing to the, to the Uyghurs. And it's awesome that the Christians in China are the ones standing up for the, for, the, for the Uyghurs, for the Muslims. But there's a whole back-to-Jerusalem movement that's been going on now for about 30 years in which the Chinese church is seeing their mission to take the gospel right through, look at all that red, all that red to get it back to Jerusalem. And they're sending out hundreds and soon to be thousands of missionaries. Well, I praise God for their faithfulness. You know, I hope we're thankful for those that we send and those who, frankly, in our past brought it to us. But two, I hope that as we do so, as we continue to send missionaries and support missionaries, that we will truly prioritize getting the gospel to the unreached. 
And I don't mean emotionalism. You know what happens a lot of times? Um, just like when you th- people who aren't trained or don't have a military background look at the military, they think, well, it's all the same. Yeah, it's just military, doing soldier stuff. Well, if you're an airman, do you really want to be called a soldier? It's often the same with missions. It's, all, it's just missions. Let's just, you know, get them out there and they all do the same thing. Well, it, it, it's, it's, there's so much diversity. There's so many needs and so many different, uh, you know, to send out one shooter, it takes an army to help support them, to support them well. And so what happens often is that, we, you know, maybe you go on a mission trip somewhere. I'll just pick a place that, that I don't think we're, I know we're not operating in. Say Belize, Right? And, and you go down to Belize, and because you went on a trip there, sudden, suddenly, and, and believe, people in Belize need the gospel, but everybody's been saved about 10 times in Belize. Not really, but in terms of like seeing American teams show up, and hey, what, what do I get from them? That dependency, that kind of stuff, all right? Um, we need to be strategic. Water flows in the path of least resistance, and so often what time, you know, it's, it's well, we get emotional about our experience. And that's what we, all we care about. Instead of saying, what does God say? He says, get the gospel everywhere. And so those red places are red. They're not up there anymore, but you, you, you saw where they were, right? North Africa, Middle East, places like Afghanistan and Pakistan, remote places like little island villagers in a, in a nation that's mostly Islamic. They're unreached for a reason. It's hard to get there. And so we need to really prioritize that. And not everybody is called to go and do a Pauline-type ministry. And we know that because faithful Christians served in each of these places, the new places that, that Paul went. And if, if not, he couldn't have said in verse 19, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Does that make sense? If, if people in these places that Paul reached hadn't stayed and shared Christ and discipled their neighbors and faithfully pastored churches and been faithful church members, he couldn't have said that. But he is calling some. God is calling some people to leave their own families and their own cultures and their own towns. And, and, and I believe that he's calling more to go to these hard places. My dear brother and friend, Dr. Chuck Cheatham, used to say, and he still says it, he's a nut, but he's an awesome M. Uh, he says, many more missionaries are interested in going to the beautiful Rift Valley of, of Kenya than to the killer Muslims of the northern Sahara. And it's true. You go to the green places and you find way, way more missionaries than in the red places. And it's not easy or, or quick. You're not going to make a dent in the red places doing a short-term mission trip. You've got to devote your life to it. We're talking about learning as Mike shared a, a month or so ago, learning language and, and culture and, and loving people, and building relationships, no shortcuts. But maybe God will send you or use you to, to help send someone else. And what a great opportunity we've heard about this morning for that very thing. Last, as we land the plane here, I want you to think about those people in your orbit who don't understand the gospel. Souls. Eternal souls. Do you, will you pray for them? 
weekly and, and, and daily. When you see him going out to take the trash out, will you just say, Lord, save, save my neighbor? And, and will you seek to build a bridge into their life so that you can share the good news with them? Before he ascended, Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would catch this this spirit, this ambition of Paul. Help us, Lord. There, There are so many needs and distractions in our lives that it's, it's just easy to forget that the unreached are there. Lord, thank you for calling members of our own church to, to want to go to the unreached. Lord, I thank you for the Wild family. I thank you for the Douglas family. and Lord, for Elizabeth, um, folks who are here with us this morning who who are, are devoting their lives to leave and to go to the unreached. Lord, give us a passion for that. But Lord, give us also a passion for our next-door neighbor. Maybe they live in a place where they could easily hear it, but maybe they never really heard it. Maybe their hearts have never really come to understand the truth of the gospel. Lord, give us a heart for those who live next door but don't know Jesus. I pray that, like Paul, we would, we would pray for their souls and, and long to offer them as, a, as an offering to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.